Well, good morning. My name is Nate. If we don't know each other, I'd love to meet you at some point. I will be uh, in the lobby after the service. I think that one of the greatest threats to the church in every generation is becoming more infatuated with ourselves than with God. In every generation, the greatest threat, I think, one of the greatest threats to the church is our propensity to become more infatuated with ourselves than with God. Uh, One of the most obvious ways that this plays out is in uh, our worship as a church. Worship is literally supposed to be about us praising God for who he is and what he's done. And we make worship about things like the music style and the vibe, you know? Um, And that's the most obvious example, but this isn't just true of the church's worship. This can also be true of how we understand our mission as a church, how we think about our mission, what we're called to do. Sadly, many times the church is guilty of morphing God's mission and making it about us. Uh, This week, I watched um, a documentary called Marjo, and I'd never heard of it before, but um, it won the Academy Award Best Documentary Award in 1972. And it's a documentary about Marjo Gortner, who um, was the world's youngest evangelist at the age of four. And from the ages of four to 14, he traveled around the United States with his family And uh, large crowds would come and listen to him preach. And and he uh, says in the documentary, he never grew up believing in God. He wasn't even taught by his parents to believe in God. He was just taught how to preach and they could attract a big following. And when the novelty of him being this young evangelist wore off, then he left and he stopped living with his family. He stopped attending the church. But then when he uh, was in his mid-20s, he was out of money and he came back as an evangelist. Um, And he built a large following. And then after building this following, he started to feel guilty about what he was doing. He, He realized that this whole thing is fake. And so he started to feel bad. And so he reached out to a documentary crew and invited them to have full access to his life and his final tour with the hope of exposing the corruption of the revival tour and the corruption of religion. And it's an interesting documentary. You can still find it online, but, um, but he blatantly used God's mission to build his own fame and his own wealth and Thankfully, not all of us are as blatant as that, but sadly, many times we are still guilty of morphing God's mission to become our mission, of in the name of advancing God's mission, actually advancing our own. And here are some examples of that. Um, In churches, we can get very concerned about building our brand, so much so that other churches actually become the competition in the market. And because I know this is 
a, a tendency that I have. It's a tendency that churches have. One of the things we try to do to fight against that is simply pray for other churches. It's just a way of reminding ourselves we are not the only people here pursuing God's mission. It's not about us. Another way that this happens is when we equate, equate growth in attendance to fulfilling God's mission. God's mission must really be advancing because more people are coming. We equate growth in attendance with spiritual fruit. We do this by morphing God's mission into a social justice campaign that's detached from a proclamation to repent and believe the good news about Jesus. And at the same time, we do this when we make God's mission simply a call to repent and believe while neglecting to care for people's material needs. Jesus came to bring God's mission. And what did we see Jesus doing? He came with word, that is, he taught stuff. And he came with deed, that is, he helped people's material needs. We can morph the mission when we neglect either one. We can be guilty of this when we make God's mission about improving America or protecting American interests rather than advancing God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. We can do this when we become very busy, diligently working for God, and yet we neglect actually loving him, knowing him, enjoying him. We're very busy, but we have absolutely no prayer life. We have absolutely no delight in our hearts for God. These are all ways that we can take God's mission and we can actually use it to advance our own mission. And that's one of the reasons that we're doing a series on the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the history of the early church. It helps answer the question, how did the message of Jesus go from this obscure group of Jews in Jerusalem to being this phenomenon all over the Roman world? How did the message of Jesus get from Jerusalem to Rome? The book of Acts answers that question. And the main point of the book is that God's mission in the world is to send and save, to send and save. Last week, we looked at Jesus entrusting God's mission to the church. And this week, we're looking at Jesus's ascension back to heaven. One of the most important ways to course correct our pursuit of God's mission. One of the most important ways to course correct our pursuit of God's mission is to correctly understand Christ's ascension. It's no mistake that just after Jesus announced the mission to the church, he ascended. We are so quick to raise ourselves to exalt ourselves. The book of Acts sets us straight from the very beginning. Jesus is exalted. And so in the words of John the Baptist, he must increase and we must decrease. And that's why the ascension and rightly understanding it is actually 
Super important if we are going to rightly pursue God's mission. So, if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 1 is where we'll be today. Um, If you need a Bible, there are some in the seats that are provided, um, and it's on page 966 in that Bible, I think. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. We have two questions that we're going to try to answer today. The first is, what is the ascension? What is the ascension? Second is, how does the ascension relate to the church's mission? So, what is it, and how does it relate to the mission? What is the ascension? How does the ascension relate to the church's mission? Those are the two questions. So, first, what is the ascension? Here's what we affirm when we talk about the ascension. This is the main point of the sermon today. Jesus was really raised to reign and return. Jesus was really raised to reign and return. Each of those four R's is going to be the outline for the sermon today. So Jesus was really raised to reign and return. So first, Jesus was really raised. What do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus is really ascending. This is not figurative or metaphorical. Jesus physically, bodily ascended to heaven. Um, Notice a couple of things in the text. First is the emphasis that Luke places on seeing in the verse. So verse nine, after he, that's Jesus, had said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. And then in verse 11, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going. Why in just a few verses, the emphasis on seeing, watching, looking, why? Because Luke wants to make sure that the readers understand they saw it. They saw it. He really started going up. The other thing to notice Um, So that's the first thing is the emphasis on sight. The other thing is in verse 11, and we're going to talk about this in a minute as well. But in verse 11, it says, this same Jesus, this same Jesus. Do you see that? Or your translation might just say this Jesus. Now, why use that little pronoun, this Jesus? Why not just say Jesus? Because it's a way of emphasizing that this one, the one that, was born in Bethlehem, the one who grew up, the one that that you lived with for three and a half years, the one who, who did stuff and taught stuff, the one who was crucified, the one who was raised from the dead, the one that you've spent the last 40 days with, the one that you've eaten breakfast with since he's been resurrected. This same Jesus is going up and will come back down. He really was raised. Jesus physically, bodily, really ascended to heaven. 
and he's physically, bodily, really located in heaven right now. Now, there are all kinds of questions that that raises, at least for me. Like, how fast was he going? Um, what was he doing with his hands? You know, he's in a body, he's going up there, is he, I don't know. What, did he, what do you do with your hands in that moment? Um, how far up did he go before they couldn't see? Like, we're talking like stratosphere. Um, what was he wearing? What's he wearing now? If he's bodily ascending and he's located somewhere physically, what's he wearing? The text doesn't answer any of those questions. <laughs> But the text does give us some important implications that we should draw for how we think about heaven in light of this. Heaven is a physical place. But it's not one that you can travel to somewhere in the universe. Now, this has brought all kinds of accusations uh, from, from skeptical people about the Bible um, because here's how uh, one of the accusations goes. In the ancient world, they understood the world, uh, they understood the cosmos in three layers. There's the earth, then there's the stuff under the earth, and then there's the stuff above the earth. Hades, or Sheol in the Old Testament, is under the earth, and heaven is above the earth. So those are the three layers. You got below the earth, the earth, above the earth. And so the fact that Jesus is claimed to be going up to heaven means that they really believed that heaven was up there in the clouds somewhere. And now that we can go up in the clouds and see that Jesus is not up there and heaven is not up there, then clearly this was wrong. And we can't read this ancient text and take our modern sensibilities and read them back onto the text. And so clearly this was a myth. And so you can believe that Jesus ascended in your heart or that Jesus ascended spiritually somehow, but you can't say that he really ascended because we know that that's not true. You can go fly around and you don't see him. And there's a number of ways to respond to this. One that I find most helpful um, is from a New Testament theologian from the UK named N.T. Wright. And in his book, surprised by hope, um, he responds by saying that the, the argument that just because the ancient world understood the cosmos in these three layers, um, the argument that they referred to it that way doesn't imply that they had to literally believe that heaven was in the sky above us. And he uses this illustration. He says, um, if someone goes from ninth grade to 10th grade, we say they moved up a grade. But we can speak that way and we don't have to believe that 10th grade is on a higher floor in the building than 9th grade, but yet we're still using the language of moving up and we do that in all kinds of ways. He says it's the same with the ancient world. Um, they didn't have to literally believe that heaven is just in the sky, but moving up and going down is just the imagery of how they thought about these things and how they talked about these things. I think that's helpful. And so um, 
now that we, uh, with that response and with further thinking that we're able to do about these things, we can say that heaven is a physical place, but not one you can travel to somewhere in the universe. So then how are we to conceive of it? And this is where I think uh, some sci-fi stuff can actually help us. Um, if you've seen Stranger Things, um, you know that the upside down exists simultaneous to the world that we inhabit. And yet you can't, nobody could see it even though it was simultaneously existing until a, a portal was opened. A better illustration, I'm told, is uh, in the Marvel universe. And I'm not a huge Marvel guy, and so this is from Evan uh, helping me this week. <laughs> he says, uh, it could be helpful to think about heaven like it's another dimension. Um, it's like when Ant-Man goes to the quantum realm. Um, it's like when Loki goes to the void. It's like when Doctor Strange goes to the dark dimension. Um, I don't know what any of that means, but... Um, <laughs> But the point is, it's not like going to another planet, and it's not even like a parallel copy of our universe. It's a unique physical place that isn't a part of the universe where we live. It's a real place that Jesus really ascended to. Now, all illustrations fall flat eventually, and we're you know, venturing into territory that I don't want to continue to explore. But, that, but, but the, the emphasis of the scripture is that heaven is a real place. It's not just floating around. It's physical. And Jesus really went there. He really was raised to heaven. Jesus was really raised. Now let's talk about the second word. Raised. He was really raised. Now, if heaven is not up there, then why was he raised? What's the point of being raised? Well, notice a couple of details in the text. First, is notice the tense of the verbs as they relate to Jesus. Verse 9. After he had said this, he was taken up. It's passive. Jesus ascended, but he did not ascend himself. The ascension happened to him. Does that make sense? He wasn't levitating or floating up into the air. He was being taken up into the air. He was being carried up. Something was happening to him. Um, it's passive there. And then notice what, here's the second thing to notice. Notice what's doing the action in verse nine. And a cloud took him out of their sight. A cloud took him out of their sight. So verse nine, he was taken up, passive. The word taken up just means raised. It's used most times in the New Testament just to talk about raising your hand, you know, or some basic thing. So it just means to go up, to be raised. And what's doing the action? The cloud. The cloud is taking him or receiving him out of their sight. Why is that significant? Well, Obviously, he's going up and the sky's up and clouds are up there. And so, okay. But there's more. 
there's more happening. The mention of a cloud is more than just, oh, it's the sky, there's clouds up there. In scripture, clouds are often a tangible picture of God's heavenly glory. Clouds are a picture of God's heavenly glory. Um, Think about the story of the Bible for just a minute, a few cloud appearances. In the book of Exodus, after God rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt, he leads them in the wilderness. What does he lead them with? A cloud. This is intended to be a picture of his presence, of his heavenly glory that is with them. When Moses is about to ascend the mountain to get the law, what's covering the mountain? A cloud. It represents God's heavenly glory. Um, In the Psalms, they're used to refer to God's glory and majesty. Um, This is significant in the Gospel of Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts. Um, Here's another place where a cloud shows up. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 34. Jesus has gone up onto this mountain. So again, he's ascended to this mountain. And while he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. So Peter, James, and John are on this mountain with Jesus. He's transfigured before them and a cloud shows up and they go into the cloud and then the voice of God comes and says, this is my son, listen to him. Clouds are a picture of God's majesty, of his glory, of his heavenly presence. So by including the cloud reference, Luke is telling us that Jesus is not just going up, but that he's going to God. He's going to heaven and he's going with glory. He's being glorified. But there's more. Here in Acts chapter one, we have a man ascending to heaven and a cloud comes and takes him. So a human being is passing through the heavens and a cloud is present. He's being taken by the cloud, going to heaven. What does this draw our attention to? Luke is intentionally trying to draw our attention to this great prophetic vision in Daniel chapter seven. In Daniel chapter seven, Daniel, who is this, prophet in exile, living in Babylon. He has this vision that terrifies him. And here's what he saw. Daniel chapter seven, verse nine. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothes, his clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. This is the glory of God in heaven with the books open. And then here's what he saw. Verse 13, I continued watching in the night visions. And suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. 
He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. He's looking at this heavenly throne room scene and suddenly a cloud starts to come with a human being in it. And this human being is seated by the ancient of days. God is seated on a throne in order to gather all the peoples of the earth to be served and worshiped in order for him to reign. Daniel sees that. And Luke says, Jesus was raised up and a cloud come and came and took him out of their sight. What is he doing? He's saying that Jesus Jesus is the son of man who is coming on the clouds, ascending into the presence of God, the father to receive a kingdom and gather all the nations of the earth before him to reign forever and ever. So Jesus being really raised doesn't mean he merely went into the sky or even that he merely went back to heaven as if he just, well, that's where he was from and now he's home and he'll lay around for a few days and takes, you know, a much needed vacation. Instead, he goes back to heaven on the clouds, meaning he's the son of man from Daniel chapter seven. He has gone back to heaven, not to relax, but to reign. He's the king. So him being raised means that he was exalted to, to heaven as king to reign. And that's our next word. So Jesus was really raised to reign. He was raised to reign. Jesus is the king reigning over all things. Now think about the context that this was written in. Acts chapter one. We talked about this last week. Jesus says, has been, it says, has been speaking about the kingdom of God. And that's what he had been doing throughout all of his ministry, both in what he was doing and what he was teaching. Jesus has come to earth. Luke taught us in his first account, the gospel of Luke. Jesus has come to earth to bring the kingdom of God to earth. So we already have a kingdom backdrop for Acts chapter one. But then it says that the disciples, the apostles gather with Jesus and they say, are you at this time restoring the kingdom? They want to know, are you going to restore the kingdom? Why are they asking him that question? Because they believe that Jesus is the king. He's the one who's been promised. He's the Messiah. Jesus does not correct them, but simply says, it's not for you to know when the kingdom is going to be fully established, but you are going to go to be my witnesses in all the earth after the Holy Spirit comes on you with power. So then in the very next moment, he ascends. What is Luke doing? He's showing us that Jesus has been ascended to be the king that we need. And it's because he's the king over all things. It's because that he's gone to heaven that we ought to go to the whole earth. 
Here are some other texts that shed light on this for us. The most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament is Psalm 110, verse 1. Here's what it says. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David is writing and he says, this is what the Lord, God, says to my Lord, a king over me. How is there a king over David? David is the king. That's the point. Here's what God said to this king. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You are going to sit here on the throne until the kingdom fully and finally comes to the earth. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 20, he, it's God the Father, he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under him, under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. What is this verse saying? These verses are saying, Jesus has been seated in the heavens with God to reign over all things. All authority has been given to him. 1 Peter 3, 22. Who, referring to Jesus, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Why are these things subject to him? Because he's the king reigning over all. Colossians chapter three, verse one. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Jesus has been raised to reign. And who raised him? And why? Who gave him this authority and why? And the answer is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. For this reason. For what reason? Because Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but instead emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. And when he had come as a servant, he became obedient, even to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason, because Jesus humbled himself and was obedient to do what the father had sent him to do. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that is Lord, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There's the threefold thing. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the father. 
God the Father is the one doing the action here. God the Father is the one who's using the cloud to bring him up. God the Father is raising Jesus to reign. Why? Because God the Father is rewarding his son for his faithful obedience. The Father loved the world and so he sent his son. Jesus loved the world and so he humbled himself and obeyed the Father's command to go. And now, for this reason, because he completed the work, God the Father raises him back up and exalts him and gives him the name above every name so that he can reign now and forever. And someday, Jesus the King will return to fully establish God's kingdom on the earth. And that's the fourth R. Jesus was really raised to reign and return. Jesus was really raised to reign and return. Our hope as Christians is not primarily that someday we will die and get to go be with God in heaven. That is not our primary hope. Our primary hope is that Jesus will someday return to us. In the end, the future is that Jesus will bring heaven down to us and will create a new heaven and a new earth. That is our ultimate hope, that Jesus is returning. Look at this in the text. The word same is used twice in verse 11. This tells us something about the return of Christ. They said, men of Galilee, why do you look standing up into heaven? Why do you stand, sorry, looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. What does it mean that this same Jesus will return? We already talked about that means that it's, it's the Jesus who lived. It's the Jesus of history. It's the Jesus who is bodily. This same Jesus ascended and this same Jesus will return. And in the same way, what does that mean? It means that he will return bodily, physically to the earth. He's not coming back spiritually so we can live forever and float around ethereally in heaven someday. He's coming back to the earth to fully establish the kingdom, to reign and to create a new heavens and new earth. He's coming in the same way. That means he's coming from above, from heaven. He's coming with glory. He ascended with a cloud, which represents glory. And if he's going to come the same way, in the same way, then he's coming back with glory. And here's why that's such good news. It's because when he returns in glory, he will also transform you if you belong to him by faith he will transform you into the likeness of his same glory. That is our hope. Listen to Philippians chapter three, two texts that make this most clear. Philippians chapter three, verse 20 and 21. These are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. 
Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. And we eagerly wait for a savior from there. So we're waiting for the savior to come back to us. Who is the savior? The Lord, the one who's been given this name from God, the father, the Lord, Jesus Christ. And here's what he will do. Verse 21. He, Jesus, will transform the body of our humble condition. You ever feel like your body's breaking down? You ever feel like there's, there's parts of you that you wish were different, that you could be no longer ashamed of something about yourself, but you could be clothed with glory. Do you ever wish that? Jesus is coming back and he will transform the body of our humble, humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. How? How is he going to do that? By the power that he has as Lord, the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. All things are under his feet and he's going to use that power for the good of his people. He's going to use his power to transform. That's our hope. Colossians 3 verse 4 says it more succinctly. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That is our hope. This offers us hope no matter what we're facing. The suffering that you're enduring, the conflict that you're enduring, the sickness that you're enduring, the death that you are enduring will someday be no more. Jesus will return in glory and we will appear with him in glory. So, Jesus was really raised to reign and return. Jesus was really raised to reign and return. What does that have to do with the church's mission? What does the ascension mean for the church's mission? Well, here's what it means. It means that we are representatives of a raised and returning king. If Jesus has ascended, if he's really raised to reign and return, then to be his witnesses in the world means that we are representatives of a raised and returning king. And that idea can course correct our tendency to make the mission about us. The mission is not about us and our earthly ascension. It's about Christ and his ascension. And let me show you that in the book of Acts. So Jesus has just given the mission. You're going to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. He says, but you wait in Jerusalem first. Then you're going to go to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends. The apostles begin to preach that message. Thousands of people come to faith in Christ. They start to gather together. News about Jesus is everywhere in Jerusalem. Everywhere you go, people are talking about how Jesus had been crucified. He was raised from the dead and he ascended to God, to heaven. Everybody's talking about it. The authorities in Jerusalem 
hate it. And so they gather up the apostles, some of them, they have them beaten, and then they warn them to shut up about Jesus. We killed him, we can kill you too. They leave from being beaten, they gather together with the church, and they start to pray. And they do not pray for protection. They pray for boldness, that they would continue to speak the message. We pray for protection. We live in some of those safe neighborhoods in the world where they protect us. They're literally facing danger and they're praying for boldness. And then they go out and they continue to speak. After they're speaking, the authorities find out again, what the heck? And so they have them arrested again. They bring them in to question them. Here's what happens. Acts chapter five, verse 28. Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and we are determined, you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And here's what they say. Acts chapter five, verse 29. Peter and the apostles replied, listen to this. We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God, listen, God exalted this man to his right hand as a ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. What are they saying? They're saying, we can't stop preaching this message because of you. We have to obey him. He's the king. He's the one who's been raised and exalted. We fear him more than we fear you. We have to. He's the king. He's the king of all things. He has much more authority to damn us, to kill us. He can, de can destroy body and soul in hell. Why would we give up preaching his name? The only name by which salvation is found. The only name by which forgiveness of sins is possible. Why would we give up preaching his name? Because we're afraid of what you can do to us. He is much more powerful than you. He's been raised. He's been exalted to the right hand of God. We are not afraid of you and we cannot stop. We can't stop. He's our king. He's been raised. Do you see how they connect the commission, the mission to go in word and deed? Do you see how they, how they connect it to the ascension? Do you see how it course corrects? This is an opportunity for them to go liberal. They can preach and just, we don't have to mention some of the doctrine about Jesus. We'll just do, we'll continue doing the good stuff, but we'll just won't mention the name. Or it's, a church, it's an opportunity for them to go hyper-conservative, try to take over the Jerusalem government for themselves. They don't do either one of those things. Instead, they are bold to carry on God's mission. Why? Because he's been ascended. He's at the right hand of God. He was really raised. He reigns. 
and he'll return. What about you? Are you prepared to go as a representative of the crucified, risen king? Representatives, what would that look like? What would it look like for you to live your life as a representative? I want to share three quick things with you. First, I think it looks like serving him with fear and trembling. In Psalm chapter two, it's this great coronation psalm where the king is installed. We studied it this summer. You can go find that on our website, Psalm chapter two. The application of that psalm. So the king is installed. And then the application is Psalm chapter two, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The king has been installed, therefore serve him with fear and trembling. And here's what was so fascinating to me to see this week is this is the exact same application that Paul makes in Philippians chapter two, right after he said that Jesus has been exalted and given the name Lord. He's the king over all things. What is the application that Paul draws from that in Philippians chapter two, verse 12? He says, therefore, dear friends, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's just applying Psalm 2. Let me ask you some questions to evaluate this. Is your life more focused on building your kingdom or Christ's kingdom? What does your calendar say? What does your money say? What does your daydreaming say? What does your planning and strategizing say? Who are you living to please? Do you live primarily with fear of man or fear of God? Jesus shows us that the path to glory, the path to ascend, the path up is not through self-promotion. It's through humble obedience to God. The way up is down. God is the one who exalts. Do you believe that? Are you living like that? If we are going to be representatives of a raised and returning king, we've got to serve him with fear and trembling. Here's the second thing we've got to do. Is we, we can do this. We endure with hope. We endure with hope. Hebrews chapter 12 the author of Hebrews is urging these Christians not to fall away, to stay faithful. And here's what he says. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see what he does in Hebrews 12? He connects our endurance in the Christian life, to the ascension. Jesus endured even the cross because he knew the joy of the ascension. And here's why that can be good news. And here's why that means you can endure with hope is because that can be your future too. And third, 
to live as representatives of a raised and returning king, I think it means that we worship with passion. We worship with passion in our private lives. That is the things we think about. We love God with our mind. We love God by spending time with him, by singing, by praying, by learning. We worship with passion. We also worship together. When we come together, we sing about a king whose kingdom is here, but also getting closer. We praise him like we're there in glory. And we have an opportunity to do this today, to worship with passion by taking the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a picture of the means by which Jesus the King took his throne. We're going to take that together in just a moment. Would you pray with me now as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper? Father, we want to praise you for sending your Son to the earth for sustaining him in his humble obedience by your spirit. And God, we praise you for what he accomplished in his death on the cross. We praise you for raising him from the dead and we praise you for raising him to reign. Thank you for seating him on the throne. God, now we want to confess that there are times where We believe there's a throne. We just believe that we're entitled to it. And we even use your name as a means of building our name. God, some of us have been distracted. We've forgotten that you're not merely a friend, though you are that. But you're a king. So God, humble us. And then, as you promise, give us grace to raise us up. It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen.